coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. A saying we like to use is every behavior is an attempt to solve a problem. So just because a client is, let's say, eating ice cream and having a glass of wine at night, it's like, oh, it seems like such an easy thing to take away. The reality is that it's serving a a purpose for them, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's helping to cope with shame, guilt, pain, fear, loss, whatever the thing might be. Um, Humans in particular use food as a coping mechanism. So when you start looking through that lens of what is this solving for someone and how can I then help them solve it differently or better with a better long-term solution and utilize food more to like nourish and support the body, um, you know, you can help people change much more effectively. So over time, I'd say we steered a less, we steered away from intense physiological intervention. Though there's a time and a place for that. And we talk about that stuff too. Um, and focused more on how do you help people actually make the changes they're looking to make. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed the Director of Performance and Nutrition at Precision Nutrition, Brian St. Pierre. He leads a team of nearly 20 expert coaches, helping individuals of all backgrounds reach their personal and professional goals. In addition, he has worked with a host of professional athletes and sports teams, including the San Antonio Spurs, Cleveland Browns, U.S. Open champion Sloan Stevens, and much more. We discussed the psychology of eating, along with Brian's deep health framework, what he learned from working with professional athletes, Precision Nutrition's new sleep, stress, and recovery certification, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Brian. He has a ton of great experience. I know you'll love it. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Brian St. Pierre on. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. Looking forward to being here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Director of Nutrition and Performance at Precision Nutrition. How many years? Uh, (laughs) Just finished my... Well, I'm going on 12, actually. Going on 12 this month, June 1st. So yeah, it's been a long time. Maybe explain to the audience uh, what Precision Nutrition is. I went through one of their certifications, but to the people that don't know. Yeah, I mean, we wear a bunch of different hats as a company. I'd say our main one is certifying other health and fitness professionals um, to do nutrition coaching. That's, you know, by far probably our our biggest service. So personal trainers, strength coaches, athletic trainers, and we can even get into the realm of like dietitians, uh, physicians, um, you know, group X instructors, the whole, anyone that basically does any type of health counseling or training in some way, shape, or form um, will often utilize our nutrition coaching certification to build their own nutrition skills and then develop coaching skills on top of that in order to actually help people change behavior. So those that's our biggest market. Um, then we have a bunch of continuing education courses to support that, to learn more and develop your skills. Uh, we have a health coaching certification. So if you really want to take it to the next level, um, we also do sleep, stress, and recovery. And then we historically actually started as a coaching company ourselves, like coaching clients, um, mm. 
And that's what got us into the certification business was, hey, we could teach people how to do this. And that became our bigger business. But we still coach clients because um, it helps inform our certification. Like, hey, what are we learning? What are we seeing? Putting things, new things into practice that we're learning from, from the research, um, testing out new ideas, right? So it just becomes like a, a cycle where we try things in our own coaching practice, learn from it, and then we put that in those learnings into our certification. So that's kind of, um, yeah, it's what we do in a nutshell, I'd say. Yeah. And having a certification like that, like updating it, how many times have you updated your certification? I think we're on, we're on our fourth edition right now. So we try to update it. Like it's not an exact science, but probably every three to five years, you know, as either as we've gathered some new learnings for something significant um, has shifted in our own practice uh, or in the research, um, you know, or we just feel like, okay, we've improved and streamlined thought processes and things. It's time to update our materials to reflect that. So it's usually about every three to five years. And what would you say some of the high level things that have changed over the years? Uh, I know it could be, could be a few things, but within, you know, nutrition and performance and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I'd say the biggest thing is, well, there are a couple of things like historically and many years ago when I started at PN, we were very focused on nutritional physiology, right? Like we had anytime meals and post-workout meals. So that was like the structure. Hmm. Anytime meals were lower in carbs, um, higher in like protein, veggies, and fats. And then post-workout meals were much higher in carbs. Right? We had all this like nutrient timing stuff mixed in there. And over time, we just found while that works, it's just more complex for people to follow. And the more we were able to simplify things, for most people, the more consistent they could be and the better results they actually got. People who were able to follow that post-workout anytime approach did great, but there was a higher rate of attrition. Like people had a harder time following it. And so we became more nutrition agnostic. We found that there were lots of different ways to help people get good results, whether that's eating Mediterranean, keto, vegan, you name it, we can help you do it better. In addition to that, we found what helped more than anything was behavior change practices, right? How do you, you can know all the nutrition information in the world. You can have a PhD in nutrition and be terrible at nutrition coaching because you don't know how to communicate to humans in a way that's going to facilitate them changing their behavior because behavior change is hard. It, it fundamentally truly is because um, there are lots of reasons why we do the things we do, right? Uh, a saying we like to use is every behavior is an attempt to solve a problem. So just because a client is, let's say eating ice cream and having a glass of wine at night. It's like, oh, it seems like such an easy thing to take away. The reality is that it's serving a, a purpose for them, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's helping to cope with shame, guilt, pain, fear, loss, whatever the thing might be. Um, humans in particular use food as a coping mechanism. So when you start looking through that lens of what is this solving for someone and how can I then help them solve it differently or better with a better long-term solution and utilize food more to like nourish and support the body. Um, you know, you can help people change much more effectively. So over time, I'd say we steered a less, we steered away from intense physiological intervention. Though there's a time and a place for that. And we talk about that stuff too. Um, and focused more on how do you help people actually make the changes they're looking to make? 
because in our experience, most certifications historically focused on just the nutrition physiology, nutrition science, human physiology, which is important and fantastic. But if you don't know how to communicate to people and you don't know how to help facilitate change, all that information in the world isn't going to get you super far. So we provide both more so than ever. We have nutrition, nutrition science, human physiology, change psychology, behavior change, skill building. We kind of give you the science and then the art of coaching and how to put that all together. So I'd say that that's been more of the evolution is adding more and more, keeping the fundamental nutrition science pieces and adding more of the coaching skills to actually get people to change. Because as the research shows over and over and over again, creating behavior change people can sustain is very difficult. So helping you develop the skills to do that most effectively is what will be the best bet for you. Yeah, I love that. And and I did notice that with your certification, it's, you know, there's a, a lot of psychology and, and behavior uh, mod and to create behavior modifications, you have to sort of dive into that. What would you mm-hmm. say some of the I know everyone's obviously a little bit different in their past and and why they eat a certain way, but what would you say some of the biggest levers are that people could do to help you know change that habit that they've been doing for 20, 30 I years? Mean, maybe not. Yeah. Certain, you know? <laughs> well, I, I think I actually would take it back to the statement I said before. Like if you start looking, this was the biggest change for me as a coach. And actually, um, Dr. Krista Scott Dixon, who I know you've had on your show, taught this to me when I first came to PN you know, 11 plus years ago, that every behavior is an attempt to solve a problem. And it just, as a coach was like, mm. blew my mind because you would get frustrated. Like, oh, why? Because before I would think of things as like self-sabotage, right? A client's doing this thing and it's impeding their ability to make progress towards their goal. Mm-hmm. And it would just frustrate me and it would frustrate them. But once I had that new frame and that new lens, okay, this is attempting to solve something for them. This is serving a, a purpose for them currently. Maybe not well, certainly not well in the long term, but it's serving an immediate need. And if we could figure out what that was, even if we didn't know exactly, right? A client's not going, oh, I'm having ice cream because I'm, it's making me feel better about X, Y, and Z thing. It's not necessarily a logical, conscious choice. So we don't necessarily even need to know the exact problem it's solving. We just need to recognize it's solving a problem. Okay, and then how can we help solve that differently? Right. What is this giving you? Oh, it's making me feel relaxed at night or, you know, whatever the thing might be. Okay. What's another way we could do that? And we talk through options. And so to me, that is as a coach, fundamentally the biggest thing you can do. It was the biggest thing I saw in my own coaching practice. And it's the biggest thing I've seen in all my years, like going out and doing workshops and presentations and having people go through case studies it's the biggest light bulb moment I see for people when we go through stuff like this, like, oh my God, I have all these clients. And it never, you know, I never occurred to me that this was serving them well in some way, even if it's a very short term benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, it just fundamentally alters how you look at client behavior, how you look at the client in particular. And then you can now go about solving it much more effectively. So to me, as the coach, that's the biggest intervention you can make or the biggest change you can make in your practice. Because for clients, there's going to be infinite reasons why they do the things they do, whether they're aware of them or not. And the second thing I would talk about is a frame we often use is to look at things through what we call a deep health lens, right? To help clients look at behaviors 
through a broader lens than how is this going to impact my physical health, right? In our experience, too often, the fitness industry has pushed people to focus almost solely on physical health. Um, that's been changing over the past couple of years. There's been a lot more talk about mental and emotional health, right? Professional athletes taking breaks for their mental and emotional health. I mean, Olympic athletes, I feel like the narrative has finally shifted there a little bit, which is fantastic because too often, historically, people have focused on, okay, I'm going to do this thing, right? Whatever it is, eat keto, go vegan. I watched a documentary. I'm going to try this thing. It's going to help me lose weight and reach my goal. Okay, great. But how is that going to impact your social and relational health, right? How is that going to impact your mental and emotional health? If you suddenly start you know, going keto and everyone else in your family is Italian and loves carbs, is that going to create conflict? And it might, it might not, right? But we have to ask the questions. So look at things through a broader lens. And we use a deep health framework where we focus on six aspects or dimensions of health. So like physical, mental, which would be like cognitive, uh, emotional, existential or spiritual, environmental, and social. And you ask these kind of questions. Okay, if we try this thing, how do you think that that'll impact? I, I'm very confident as a coach, that's going to help move you towards your physical health goal. How is it going to impact your overall deep health? How is it going to impact these other aspects or dimensions of your health or your life? And it suddenly changes their perspective on, well, I really wanted to try this thing, but it might cause a conflict with my partner, with my kids, with might be really difficult to pull off logistically in this way. Suddenly you change, you broaden that perspective, you zoom out a little bit. And you see how it's going to impact you in multiple areas. Because too often what we see historically is people follow that program for a short period of time because they can like knuckle, white knuckle their way through it, Mm -hmm. make progress towards their physical health goal. But then it sucked and it caused all kinds of problems and other aspects of their life. So they stop doing it. And then what happens, right? They revert back to where they were. So they make progress, they come back. They make progress, they come back. Because they weren't looking at it through that broader lens of how is this going to impact me elsewhere. So if you now look at things through that lens, and you can make decisions that maybe will take a little longer to move you towards your physical health goal, but that will actually improve your overall health and well-being, what we call deep health, that'll be much more sustained, right? Because it's actually improving your overall well-being in other aspects of your health and life. And so that's going to be progress that stays with you as opposed to Rapid progress, revert back. Rapid progress, revert back. So right. I'm not even sure if I answered your question, but I think those are two fundamental things that can really help people make sustainable progress, regardless of what the thing is they're trying to change. Yeah, no, that's great. And and like you mentioned, like most people do go on that like yo-yo dieting and come on something and then off it. And I always say like, like just as far as like working out, let's just use that as an example, like people go gung ho, you know, they're, they're in it for they, they're five, six days a week. And then mm-hmm. they burn out after a month. <laughs> and right, cause they went from, they like went from zero to 11, right? right? Right. Went past 10 all the way to 11. Yeah. Instead of, okay, let's just work out twice a week right? <laughs> and do that. Like we o- go from a zero to a four and then, then maybe over time go from a four to a six. Right. And then maybe we settle in right at that six or seven. And that's, you know, if you want to be an elite athlete, yeah, you've got to have that dial cranked up to a 10. If you just want to like be fit and healthy and play with your kids or grandkids or go on a hike or what have you, it doesn't need to be six days a week, right? And I think that's 
often the misconception of what's needed to reach a goal and sustain a goal. Those two things aren't often aligned. Mm. Um, so yeah, and then doing it in a way that you can sustain over the long term. So yeah, so we love that dial method rather than it's usually an on off switch, right? I'm either not doing anything or I'm trying to crank it up to six <laughs> times a week to make up for not having done anything for a while. And then invariably, like you said, you burn out. How can we keep that dial at least turned up to, you know, a two or a three. So we're always doing something. And then ultimately, like we can turn it up when appropriate. Sometimes it's okay to crank it up to a 10. You're training for something. You've got a honeymoon coming up or your wedding, right? There are, there are valid reasons to be more aggressive. Um, but on the whole, where can we settle that dial that fits your lifestyle, fits your circumstances, uh, and then fits your needs? And speaking of athletes, uh, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile, you talked. It talks about how you worked with Sloan Stevens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Sloan Stevens, uh, U.S. Open tennis champion. What did you learn from working with her? <laughs> uh, she might not love this, but she and she knows this though. She was the pickiest eater I've ever worked with in my entire career. Um, oh, really, which which made it uh, actually was incredibly um, rewarding in the end because it forced me to. I have to think harder and differently and outside the box in ways I hadn't in, in a while. Um, and we did all kinds of stuff. Like we flew in a chef and did taste testings and what are we <laughs> going to find that she likes and we can pair together. But it actually ended up being like super helpful um, for me as a coach because it's easy to get into like, I don't want to say a rut, but maybe a routine of like, hey, this is what we do. This is how this how that'll help you, um, particularly with athletes. It's easy to kind of fall into that trap, I think, a little bit because they're more apt to just do a thing. Like they're used to getting coaching. Hey, tell me what to do. And I just kind of do it. So athletes are are more in that mold in general. Uh, Sloan was not in that case. So she was, but she was great. I mean, she, once we found combinations that she liked, we actually ended up creating like a, like a matrix chart for her because mm. obviously the chef wasn't with her. 24 7 we would fly in the chef for like grand slam tournaments and things like that um but on her own you know with her in combination with her mom who was her manager and her and her other support staff um we found like okay we created like a a matrix of proteins carbs like veggies and fats that she liked and that she enjoyed she could pair all of them together and it worked out okay and it took work to to figure out (laughs) uh what what fit her her preferences and what didn't was she then, uh, just sorry to interrupt was she ahead. when you say picky you mean like she would only eat certain things or she or like like certain uh like was she like she wasn't vegan or vegetarian or anything like no, that no no she wasn't um no so oh, okay. i'm like if 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 she had been had a lot of food restrictions on top of it i mean she had some cuz she had some intolerances and and things of that nature um but really it was like in her mind no that food cannot go with this food like that that i don't like the care pairing about. of foods um okay. which that's okay. Um, <laughs> but it certainly just created new challenges of like, okay, what can we do to still meet her protein needs and her carb needs and make it into a meal that was still nutritious and nourishing her, supporting her training, her recovery, uh, right? And things of that nature. So it just, it just took work and that's okay. And then, you know, ultimately we just found, we got into a good rhythm where we had this, this matrix and her mom would really help and it put, cause she was very young at the time. She was early twenties. Um, very early twenties. Oh, that, what years did you work with her? 
Was it? I mean, the year she won the U.S. Open. So was that 2018? Yeah. Uh, 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think we started in 2016 and, and then 2017. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was really, really what I learned more with her was, okay, it just forced me to get out of my comfort zone as a coach. Like, yeah, here are normal meal combinations that most right clients or athletes are on board with, um, that she was not. And we just had to, to figure out new processes, new combinations, do the taste testing. And it was great for me because I got to go to the taste testing too. And my you know, the chef was awesome, right? I'm trying <laughs> all this great food. I'm like, man, I need all of this. Um, but someone ultimately, like, someone like ahead. that, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Someone like that, well, she can have to consume quite a bit. Like, um, I mean, she, you know, it's now interesting she, yeah. you say that. I mean, yes, um, because of her activity level. Um, but at the time she was coming off a, an injury and had, uh, gained some body weight she didn't want to have. So we were trying to, we were trying to thread the needle of like helping her reach a body composition that she was happy with that would help her performance for endurance purposes, speed, agility purposes. But we, we didn't want to lose too quickly um, and increase risk of like injury, especially when she was coming off a significant injury. Um, so we're trying to help with her recovery, but still slowly bring mm. like body weight, body comp um, down and improve in that area. So it was a little bit of trying to thread the needle there, which I, I feel like we were able to do quite well. Obviously, she was able to to you know, win the U S open. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, she ate, what was interesting is when we first put together her plan, like we worked together with her and the chef and her team and she saw what she was going to be like, you know, what the matrix was and how it was going to work out. She's like, Oh my God, this is, this is so much food, Brian. I don't think I can eat this much. She felt, cause I think oftentimes people who don't know a ton about nutrition equate volume of food with amount of calories. Mm. And it was, we had to talk, you know, I actually have showed her through like, okay, yes, it's more food than you're used to, but it's actually fewer calories than you were eating. Right. Because before she was having, you know, fried meats, ate, drank a lot of like pineapple juice, other juices, which we kept some of that in there just for like her preferences. And she really enjoyed it. So you got to find that happy medium. Right. Um, but we reduced a lot of that stuff. So the actual volume of food, especially because we added more vegetables, excuse me, the volume of food went up. My total calories came down. So that was a hmm. um, little work, a little push and pull between the two of us. Okay, like let's, we just treated it as an experiment because she was skeptical. I'm like, let's just try it for two weeks. See what happens. If it feels like it's too much food or we're not re- making any progress towards your goal, like, I will happily change it and we can try something else. So she tried it. Took a little adjusting. Um, but then after two weeks, she had made some progress like physically what we were looking for and she was getting used to the amount and she was like okay i'll I'll try i'll keep trying it and then it just kind of snowballed from there and then she was actually got more consistent of course as she saw results occurring so you know but i think that was a key framing was let's just treat it as an experiment we'll try it for two weeks alone and we can always pull it down but i'm reluctant to go too low coming off there you're still recovering from the injury right like i want to make sure that continues to heal as you're able to ramp up your activity, right? So we kind of talked through like the pros and cons of eating less and the risks that could entail. So that's why she was willing to try it for two weeks. Yeah. And and like you talk about like self-experimentation a little bit, right? Like Mm -hmm. I always say that's you're your best, should be your best patient, right? Like 
like you, you nowadays there's all this nutritional dogma that goes on about what to eat and when to eat but like i'm always trying things you know not all the time because you want to stay somewhat consistent but like you know i've done periods of time where i've done more fasting and then now I'm, I'm not fasting as much and i'm trying to find times you know when when like certain meals like fit like my workouts and things like that like how important is self-experimentation i mean i would say depending on the individual but in general like pretty important you got to find yeah. what what works for you right um because too often like like i said before we teach being like a nutritional agnostic as a coach which means I'm not married to any one approach. There are multiple different ways for people to make really good progress and be healthy and eat well. And the key is, like you said, finding the approach that you can do most consistently, right? So with that, have, with that said, though, um, oftentimes that requires self-experimentation to figure that out. And oftentimes a client will come to us and be like, okay, I really want to try this thing. And I'm like, inside, I'm like, okay, I'm a little skeptical of that being a thing. <laughs> But on the outside, I'm like, okay, well, what, in, you know, I'll explore, do some exploratory questions, what interests you about it. And if they're really gung ho, it's like, okay, hey, let's try this for a couple of weeks and see how you respond. And we have like a a questionnaire, um, like basically, it essentially asks, how's that working for you through a series of questions. Okay. Right? It's called like our diet satisfaction assessment or, you know, has some more formal name, but <laughs> fundamentally it's quantifying how's that working for you in different aspects of your health and your life. And then we'll go through that. And then oftentimes they're like, yeah, this works. It was working great here. But man, it's been difficult with this and this or that. Uh, or sometimes, to my surprise, like this has been awesome. I love it. Right. Like I, we actually just had a, I just had a family reunion this weekend uh, with my mom's family. And I'm talking to an uncle I haven't seen in a while who's made some great changes and which I never bring up, but if people want to talk to me about it. They know what I do. So he's telling me all about it. Like he's been eating keto for like the past year and he loves it, he thrives on it. Right. But, but like a lot of people who have tried a new thing and found it successful, I said, I don't understand why everyone doesn't eat this way. Mm -hmm. Like, well, like N equals one, you know, I didn't explain it quite like this, but in my mind, N equals one doesn't apply to everybody, right? It's working great for you. But when we look at the bigger picture, you see people who feel that way and do really well on total opposite approach right like a whole food plant-based mm -hmm. or mediterranean or paleo or you name it you can find supporters of an approach yes very true which tells us that there are many ways to be successful right there's not one universal solution and so how can we help people find the approach that fits their current circumstances preferences and needs uh, which go which requires some level of self-experimentation yeah I agree. I mean, I've not this well, this interview will come out before, but I'm going to have uh, like a carnivore on and then I have individual sort of from the other sphere where, you know, believes that carbs can play a positive role <laughs> in your health. And we're going to we're going to talk it out. And, you know, the thing is, we'll, we'll never come to a conclusion, really, because, you know, they each believe one way or the other. But like you said, everyone's got to sort of figure out like what what works for them, what's their journey all about. You know, um, it's interesting. I'm just looking at some of your your posts, and this one was about a, a, a sort of these different ways of eating: low fat, Mediterranean, keto, paleo, plant based. But <laughs> right. stick stick to the fundamentals, right? Like you they all have, yeah, yeah. That's a great. <laughs> they all have 
um, fundamental underpinnings, right? Like I know exactly what, what you're looking at. Yeah. One of my favorite <laughs> images. Um, cause the idea is right. They have all these people who, who believe in these various approaches thinking they're all so different and there are obviously differences, right. but there are fundamental commonalities among virtually all successful approaches, mm-hmm. right? They all emphasize minimally processed whole foods, right? They all make sure you get an adequate amount of protein. Almost all of them recommend eating plenty of, of vegetables, um, and usually some fruits, but not always, right? There's usually some combination of either some healthy fats or quality carbohydrates in some way, shape, or form. Um, there's one of them or both, but ultimately it's minimally processed whole foods, getting plenty of protein, usually getting in even carnivore. A lot of carnivore proponents are including small amounts of certain uh, plant foods, squashes, and things of that nature. Well, now they're um, starting to add them back in. You're seeing this with the right. carnivores. This, yeah, this is what happens if you've been in the game long enough. Yeah, paleo did the same thing, right? Years ago, it was really strict, and then they slowly added they added sweet potatoes, and they added <laughs> oh, you know, grass fed dairy was okay, because you almost always have to moderate an approach like that yeah. for it to fit a broader audience. Because the mm. more restrictive you make it the fewer number of people are going to be able to follow it consistently. So, I mean, that's just the reality. The more restrictive or the more complex, the greater the decrease in consistency. So that's why you see something like Mediterranean, right, which restricts very few things on the whole. Um, It's a much more broadly accepted approach because it doesn't require as many sacrifices. Now, it's less sexy in the sense that carnivore or original paleo or fully plant-based it is crystal clear out of the gate i can eat this i can't eat this Mm -hmm. which has its value right because okay i can eliminate some food decisions and just do a thing there's value in not having to think about every food decision that you make right but there's a longer term trade-off where it's much harder to stick to long term because it's so restrictive right you go to a friend's birthday party you go to a family reunion like i went to you go to any social gathering, there's going to be lots of things there that are like not allowed for you to eat. And that's hard. That's hard for people to stick to over a long period of time because food is a part of social connection, right? We've broken bread together and shared meals throughout all of human history. Uh, Food brings joy and pleasure. So if you're cutting a lot of that stuff out, it's going to be much harder to follow. So ultimately, follow those fundamental underpinnings that they all agree on and then find those elements those differences that speak to you or appeal to you or are appropriate for your goals right if you're training to run a half marathon you're probably better off eating some carbs right something with carbohydrates um you know if you're a bodybuilder or a power lifter versus an ultra marathon or like there are different physiological needs there but ultimately for most people it's based on preferences you get those you get those fundamental pieces in place everything else is personal preference yeah that's well said i mean you do see these extremes and i think part of it too is just the age we we're living in in the sense that people need to you know they got they want to maybe market themselves a certain way and if you're not if you're right if you're blending you're you're blending in right you're not going to stand out you're not going to stand out and if you have a stance and it's really strong on one way then you're going to stand out and you're going to attract certain people so i think there's a little bit of that going on as well 
100% always. And humans are always seeking out novelty, right? I mean, that's part of how we're wired. So it stands to reason that people are going to, A, seek it out as a, a individual who wants to coach people because it's, I want to find a new novel approach. And B, there are people who are seeking out to find a newer novel approach because what mm-hmm. they've done historically hasn't worked, right? So there's seeking out novelty is a normal human feature. But it's also, a, you got to balance that with recognizing what about this seems valid and aligns with what every other successful diet does. And what about this seems like it's really uh, pushing the boundaries of what makes reasonable sense. So, I mean, ultimately, even the most extreme approach, like something like carnivore, for example, follows some of those fundamental underpinnings, right? Minimally processed whole foods, check. Plenty of protein, check. Those are probably the only two checks. But they're including... maybe, Maybe quality fats. Yes, that's probably right. fair. Yep. Some healthy fats, though they uh, they eliminate other healthy fats. Mm-hmm. But yes, there are definitely healthy fats uh, discussed and included. And as we noted, it's already evolving, right? There's right. already a, a movement towards getting right. in more of those fundamental pieces, getting in more colorful plant-based foods, like fruits, Fruit and, and honey is a big one adding into so, a lot. Yeah. Right. So you're seeing it evolve already. Um which is exactly what we would expect. If you've been in this game, I've been around long enough. This is what happens with every new novel approach that comes in. It then moderates and evolves, right? To broaden its tent. And because it's really hard to stick to highly restrictive approaches long-term for most people. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts around, I just had him on, hasn't published, although when this comes out, it'll be out. (laughs) Chris Kenobi, uh, he's a physician, optim- ophthalmologist for years and, and nutrition researcher. And there's a, quite a, not just him, but a, quite a few other people talking about, you know, seed oils, you know, these vegetable oils that have sort of taken on, a, a, you know, sort of this rise from, you know, the 1900s all the way, you know, from like Crisco all the way till today and sort of blaming that on sort of what's going on with obesity. Any thoughts around that? Is that something that you guys have added into your trainings? I mean, um, to a degree. So there was a time in my career, probably like 10 years ago, where I was more on board with that idea. Um, Like seed oils being significantly problematic. Um, And I still don't think they're a a phenomenal food choice because of the high level of processing they have to go through, that high heat or chemical extraction that's required um, can lead to some trans fat formation. But when you look at the research on the whole, it doesn't support the idea that this is like some unique poison or uniquely significant contributing factor to to obesity and stuff like that. So ultimately, you know, it's I don't think they're the world's greatest health foods. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at we have an, an infographic and if you just Google like precision nutrition, what to eat. We, we label foods on a continuum rather than like good or bad. It's eat more, eat some, eat less. Yeah, I saw um, that. Most seed oils are on the eat less, but that doesn't mean eat never. There are some exceptions. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, would I put them like high on the list of, of problematic foods? I mean, yes, in the sense that they're used in a lot of processed things. Right. right? They're cheap to make. So it's they're used to make potato chips and French fries and 
literally you name any processed food and you look <laughs> on the ingredients list and it's going to have a seed oil on it. It's a cheap source of very, because of the high level of processing, they have a very mild flavor, right? So they're easy to add into highly processed foods. So from that standpoint, you know, they're not ideal. Um, but from an individual food perspective, yeah, I wouldn't encourage large consumption, but I wouldn't be frightened of them. Right. And, I I yeah. And it's just, it's, it's a cheap way of cooking, right? Like restaurants use them. 99% of restaurants are using canola oil or sunflower oil or, so, you know, fat flour, corn, soybean. Soybean is soybean oil alone makes up almost 10% of calories in the U S diet. Mm. Right. So that in and of itself is a little concerning, right? This was a food that wasn't eaten really until like the 1950s in any significant amount. So right. that's like, okay. Uh, but where does it occur? In highly processed foods. So if you're not eating a lot of highly processed foods, you're not going to be getting a ton of seed oils anyway. Um, so if you have uh, a store-bought dressing that has some seed oil, I, it wouldn't worry me in the least because it's about the big picture of your intake. Right. And if that is your sole source or one of your few sources, it's not yeah. a big deal. It's when you eat lots of processed foods like the majority of the american diet is made up of um then it becomes more concerning because the amount of it the proportion of it is so out of whack with what we should be consuming we're not getting enough like extra virgin olive oil we're not getting nuts and seeds like other sources of healthy fats that we know promote health um or we're quite confident promote health <laughs> so i think that's that can be a concern when it displaces those types of fats, but they can certainly be included in moderate amounts in, in a healthy, I mean, the research is pretty consistent that they're not independently problematic uh, when consumed in, in normal amounts and in, in super high amounts and in highly processed foods. That's a different situation. Now, before we went on the air, you mentioned that you're one of your newer certifications, sleep, stress, and recovery. And you said it was one of your best ones. Uh, maybe just give us a little uh, window into that certification and like what what you learned from that. Yeah, I mean that was so in the fourth edition of our nutrition certification, you, which you've done. We have a whole like chapter on like basically sleep, stress, and recovery, and that was new, pretty new to that certificate, that version of the certification, or at least a significant expansion from the third edition. Um, and we felt like, man, there's so much more to say here, but we can't cram it all into this one chapter or even into this nutrition certification, which is already long enough as it is. <laughs> um, we'd really just love to like talk more about this. Like this is right something that's just as important as nutrition and it significantly impacts nutrition, right? There, there are feedback loops when you're super stressed or you don't sleep enough. We know it's going to significantly alter nutritional choices. So they're, they're interrelated and they feedback with each other. And when you eat really well, it actually improves mood and improves emotional regulation to help you manage stress better. So there's this this back and forth, right? And so we were trying to come up with a way to talk about, first, we were trying to limit it to just stress, but we felt like we couldn't just talk about stress and we couldn't just talk about sleep as their own certifications. They just felt too interconnected. Um, so we kind of rolled it all together into sleep, stress management and recovery, about the science behind them, how stress manifests. And we use our that deep health framework I talked about. We talk, well, yes, we call it deep stress, right? 
highly creative. Um, <laughs> how you can how you can have stress in each of those different dimensions or aspects of your life: emotional stress, social stress, mental stress, right? Like too many cognitive demands. Uh, social stress, like social rejection, or you know, death of a loved one, could be like environment, like uh, existential stress, despair, depression. So we talk about all these different aspects of stress and the overall stress load. How sleep is like your recovery rock star, um, because sleep helps you improve in more dimensions of deep health than anything else. If you get really good sleep, or think about if you get really poor sleep, you're grouchy, you don't think clearly, you're tired. I mean, it's impacting multiple areas of your health and well-being. So if you get really good sleep, that can improve so many areas. You become less stressed. You can eat better. You can exercise more consistently. So we really tried to talk about the interconnectedness of them all, the science behind them all, and the skills you can build in each of those, in stress management, in emotional regulation, in sleep. Like, how do you sleep more and how do you sleep more often or sleep deep more deeply and get more sleep, right? Those are the two different aspects of sleep. Um, and then overall, like recovery, which would include nutritional interventions and training interventions. Um, so there are small amounts of nutrition and training in there too. So yeah, I mean, ultimately, we really use that deep health health framework significantly in this course, uh, much more so than even the nutrition one, because sleep and stress so greatly impact each area of our our deep mm -hmm. health, right? The, the six aspects we talk about um, and how we can leverage that, though, to improve in those areas. So yeah, I think that's basically, to me, I think it explained our our own personal approach and ethos to health and well-being better than any other course we've created. Um, and it just explains how to help people change, like the coaching aspect, better than any course we've created because we've evolved and, and learned more over time. And we had, after we did the fourth edition of our nutrition certification, we did, I think we created eight continuing education, nine, nine continuing education course. No, 12. <laughs> Sorry. It was a lot. Yeah. We, were, we had a whole team. We were cranking through courses. We created 12 different continuing education courses, wow. which really helped us get better at explaining our coaching approach and giving people the tools and the skills to do those things well. And that all culminated in our sleep, stress, and recovery certification in a way I feel like it hadn't before, even though I feel like our nutrition certification is awesome. I think it's the best out there. But this took it to a whole new, new level in terms of here's how to help people change Here's how to understand coaching practices. Here's how to build skills. Um, I feel like it just really came together in a way that uh, was just incredibly dynamic, easy to understand, and actually fun to read. Yeah, I was just scrolling through it right now. I mean, I, I agree. I, I can tell I'm pretty uh, self-aware of like, uh, if I don't get great sleep, like how, how it affects other aspects of my life. I think some people, when they get bad or they're, they're, they're in this rut of getting bad sleep for a long period of time. They're sometimes not aware of how much it's mm -hmm. really affecting them, you know, as it's a their new normal. Yeah. It's their new normal. And I think that's a lot that goes to it for a lot of people. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, you have kids, you have three kids, so I'm sure you've, you've gone through some times of not getting sleep. <laughs> the hardest uh, part of having kids, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, What's your routine like? I'm just curious. And, you know, eating and, and sleeping and, and workout. I'm just, I, I like to ask guests and see what, what their sort of routines are like. Yeah. I mean, 
I have a full-time job. I have three <laughs> kids. Oh, I have a, a dog trying to come in my office right now. I have two dogs. <laughs> uh, my wife owns her own business. So, you know, we have a lot going on. And ultimately, I try to keep it very simple. Um, my approach has stayed very consistent through the years, you know, with obviously always minor modifications. But for the most part, I mean, I eat four times a day. Um, basically, like a early, early morning when I, I get up at like 530. So I have coffee and I have like a small bite to eat. Usually work out around 630. And that bite to eat is just something little like before. Uh, well, like it's a... co- always some dark chocolate with my coffee, man. Gotta gotta have some dark chocolate with <laughs> okay. my coffee. Um, and it's usually like that and like a banana and a protein shake. Or I'll do like an RX bar um, and a banana if I want a little bit more carbs. I'm going to be like doing a really hard workout because I just feel better when I when I do that. Um and that's pretty much it. I mean, it's very, very, yeah. generally very then, minimal. And then um, you do your workout. Yep. And then usually I'm like getting the kids ready for school or this time of year off to summer camps or, you know, chauffeuring <laughs> them around there. And then I come back, I have like a, what I would consider my breakfast, but usually around like between nine and 10, um, which is usually just like a big thing of Greek yogurt, like plain Greek yogurt. Uh, yeah. Various fruit, usually, usually because I love pineapple. It's usually pineapple, like strawberries mm. and blueberries, uh, all mixed in there. But like today, I just chopped up an apple. Uh, that's what I had with some peanut butter toast. Um, and then, yeah, and then I usually have lunch around two o'clock, which is usually something very simple chicken with some potatoes and vegetables. Or uh, I'll get some like pre made meals from our, from the grocery store, which are actually great. There's one that's like a, it's got rice, brown beans, corn, chicken. Um, it's like a, like a fresh salsa on it. It's really good. And I usually have, no matter what I have with one of those, I'll usually have um, like some almonds and another piece of fruit uh, to kind of top off my my lunch. And then dinner varies the most. You know, it's, it's the meal that we have as a whole family. So, but it's almost always something that revolves around a protein, quality carb, some healthy fats, and some veggies. Um or occasionally just some fruit. Like last night, we had breakfast burritos for dinner. I stir fried mm-hmm. up some peppers and onions. We had some wraps, some eggs, some black beans, a little cheese. We all had some fruit with it. And it was fantastic. So I usually keep it um, very simple, very balanced. You know, don't worry too, too much about trying to time this and time that. And those four re- reasonably or evenly spread out meals, usually in bed, I mean, my wife and I, are, we go to bed early, um, much to the chagrin of our 12-year-old daughter who wants to now stay out later and <laughs> do things. And it's like, okay, well, mom and I are, going, are in bed or asleep by 9.30, so we got to be done by 9. Right. Um, so that might have to change. We'll see how that uh, how that works out as she gets older here. But uh, <laughs> ultimately, you know, we're usually upstairs, uh, like tucking the boys in or hanging out with the boys and, and our daughter. Um, but we're usually in around nine, eight thirty, like reading some books with the kids, and then we read our own books usually for a little bit, and then asleep by nine thirty ish. Usually aiming for eight hours. Sometimes it's earlier if I'm tired. Sometimes it's ten if I'm not. Um, but yeah, anywhere between nine and ten, and then awake by five thirty. That's that's the way it goes. And then exercise wise, you know, um, generally lift. Generally lift three days a week. This time of year, it's often two, just because there's so much more to do outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go mountain biking with um, some other dads in my neighborhood. Um, 
I'm running a 10K race with my wife this year, which I've done in the past, but I'm not typically a big runner. So 10K is like pushing my limits. <laughs> I can mountain bike, but boy, running is like, uh, uh, I come from a strength and conditioning background. That was my big emphasis for a long time. So yeah, really lifting generally three times a week. I play men's league hockey in the winter, uh, mountain bike, run, do intervals, do some zone two work, just a whole smorgasbord of things because I want to be able to be strong, fit, healthy, be active. No, no set particular goal. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of where okay. that all works out. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Sounds like a pretty balanced approach. Um, and I think as you get older, it's like you you want to do a lot of things, but also not get injured. One hundred percent. Yeah, it's right. it's nice that you're still playing hockey. Um, those days for me, I never played hockey. I was basketball, and I'm like done with those days. Uh, well, <laughs> basketball is surprisingly hard on yeah. the body. Like yeah. I play sometimes with some of those neighborhood dads, and like you're sore after, yeah. like significantly it's, sore. It's much much harder on the body than you would think watching the sport and it's not it's much harder on the body than i than i'd say hockey is yeah mm. at least men's league hockey right where there's no hitting and right not, no hitting. not even wearing shoulder pads you're not getting checked at the boards yeah, no, no. <laughs> um so yeah no like i i i love it i still love playing hockey but even when i mountain bike um you know some of the guys are i'm not a huge risk taker because like hey, right. i gotta get up and work tomorrow right i gotta bring my kids here and i've seen guys get pretty badly hurt and i'm oh, like yeah. that doesn't interest me now they give me a hard time because i go around some of the jumps while they're hitting them and i'm like yeah i've seen you wipe out of that <laughs> jump and get 12 stitches and right have to go it's to the worth uh, it. er for iv antibiotics because it got infected like that i'll, I'll pass right my yeah my manliness doesn't uh, depend right. on taking some mountain biking jumps <laughs> now uh, just to sum things up, this is a question I ask a lot of my guests is, what one tip would you give an individual, you know, maybe they're in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, and they want to sort of, you know, get back to what they were maybe 5, 10, or 15 years ago. Um, what what one tip would you would you give that individual? I'd say I would try to think of things on a dial rather than an on-off switch, right? Especially if it's been down for a long time, right? more often than not especially as we get older if you try to flip that on or you crank that dial to 11 that's how people get hurt because the body's not prepared for that right your tissues your ligaments and your tendons are not prepared for that sudden massive increase in in activity um so not to necessarily like super ease your way into it but instead of having that dial to zero and cranking it to 10 crank it to a four right just start walking or start, you know, doing some body weight work, hmm. elevated push-ups, body weight squats, right? That kind of thing. Just to kind of get things rolling, right? Because really what we're looking for are easy wins. When you can stack win upon win upon win, that's how you make consistent, steady progress. It's when you say, okay, I'm going to start doing this five times a week and eating better and going to sleep at nine. And you start trying to change so many things all at once. Invariably, something's going to break because you haven't created the routines and the systems to make that just a normal part of your everyday life. So something's going to break. You're going to feel shitty about it. And then that's when usually the screw it, right? I'll <laughs> do this tomorrow. Or right, right. suddenly that dial comes crashing back down because it got really hard. That's what's going to happen because life always kicks you in the teeth. It always throws you a curveball. Something's going to happen. 
So you prepare for that by slowly but systematically increasing things because then you can modify that much more easily when that curveball comes. All right, if you're planning to exercise three times a week and something happens, you only got in two sessions that week, that doesn't feel like a failure. But if you're going for six and you only got in two, that often feels like a failure, even though two is a hell of a lot better than the zero you were doing before, Hmm. right? And so then that helps you more consistently do it. And it's consistency that matters in the long term. And so, okay, we got it to a four. Now I'm feeling really good. I'm able to do this consistently. I still want to do more. Okay, let's crank it up to a six or a seven, right? Eat a little bit better. Go to sleep a little bit earlier, right? Add an additional exercise day or two. And it doesn't have to be something huge. Too often we think, oh, it's got to be like 60 minutes at the gym. I got to go for a five mile run. Like, no, you can just do like 30 minutes. Get in what you can, when you can. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? There are plenty of days I plan on doing my full hour long lifting routine, but I have kids and a, my wife has a business and stuff happens. It just always does, right? So it's like, okay, I can't get that in today. What can I get in? I can get in a 20 minute, 20 minute circuit with a bunch of different weight exercises. Great. It's Done. better. It helps me tread water until the next time I can do my, my larger no. routine. Right. So find ways to tread water when things happen or things go sideways because they will be prepared for that. And then slowly up that dial until you reach a point where you're reaching your goals and it's a way you can maintain it. Right. So it doesn't have to be a 10, doesn't have to be a four, wherever on that dial you can set it. That's this fits my preferences, my lifestyle, my current life circumstances, and it's helping me reach whatever my goals are. And then try to keep that you know, reasonably close there. If something really hard happens, see if you can turn that dial down, but keep it off of zero, right? So using that dial concept instead of an on-off switch Love that. is usually a massive game changer for people to help break that all or nothing mindset. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Now you're the first guest to sort of use that analogy with the dial. And I think that that is so true because yeah, there's some days where stuff comes up and it's like, I think the other day I was going to do a whole lifting thing. I had like, I think I had maybe 20 minutes and I like literally did just like a shoulder routine and just, <laughs> right. but it, you know, it was better than nothing. So absolutely. Like, I'm a big fan. I'll do like what I call, I mean, they're dumbbell complexes, right? So it's just, I grab one weight. So it's like 35, I mean, 35 or 40 pounds, but whatever weight feels appropriate. Most people start with like 15 to 25 and then I'll do like some curls to like a hold the weights on my shoulders, do some squats, mm. overhead presses, right. do some like reverse lunges, bent over rows. Everything. I'll either hop down and do push-ups on them or I'll lay on a bench and and, and press them up. So you're kind of hitting the whole body and I'll do, it usually takes about a full minute because I'll do like eight reps of everything uh, and then I rest a minute and then mm. I repeat it like six times. I like that. That's and cool. you can do that whole thing in 15 minutes, right? So sometimes if all I have time for, I'm getting in conditioning, I'm actually moving some weights, I'm going through a whole body routine. Not too bad. So that, that's my go-to when when shit happens, and it does. Do the total body. I just try to get in some some complexes, and maybe I'll walk the dogs later in the day. Uh, but if I can't get in my full workout, at least I got in something. Yeah, I think I did. I did had 35 pounds, and I wanted to. I did 10 reps shoulder presses, then did 30 10 reps. 25, 10 reps and just went all the way down. And I was like, okay. And then did the same thing for like maybe curls and 
I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> right. But it, yeah. Yeah. it's still something. Right. You still, you get the mental benefit of knowing you got a workout in, you get the physiological benefit of, right. Glucose is not going to be disposed better. You're going to create some new muscle tissue because of protein turnover. Like there are actually a whole bunch of positive things that came from just that small little workout as much as your full one. Of course not, but a shitload more than sitting there and doing nothing. Absolutely. All right, Brian, lots of great stuff packed in this hour. I appreciate you uh, coming on. Where's the best place for people to find you? I mean, I would say <laughs> precisionnutrition.com or check out any of our stuff on our, our social media, our Instagram, uh, Facebook, you know, things of that nature. I mean, me personally, I don't use social media. I know you're I noticed that today. I, noticed, <laughs> I know. I noticed I was like trying to, you know, do a little research or, I was like, well, his and your website, it's, I don't think, <laughs> I think website this website hasn't been updated like in 1948. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, it still exists. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, it's a nice young picture, I look at picture it, of you. You know, yeah. I, I, I do my work for PN and then I go home. And I don't I blame you. With my honestly, kids. I don't blame um, you. You know, so I, I could do without social media, honestly. I mean, I like it to some degree, but. You can learn a lot now, you know, you can learn great exercises on Instagram and, you know, don't forget people's birthdays because of Facebook and things like that. But like beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> you, can get, you can get lost in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's kind of my thought on it. it ha- it's a tool and it has some uses, um, but it's also a double edged sword. So okay. if you want to find out more about my work and what PN does, I mean, I my work's all over PN. So right. if you go to precisionnutrition.com, uh, you check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or I think we're even on TikTok. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll see any yeah, all you guys the stuff have, I've created. Yeah, and you guys have a great blog that I reference some things from. So um, I will put that in the show notes. So thanks, awesome. Brian, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there, and you've chosen to listen to mine, and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.